Well, good morning again. I'm really excited about today's message, but I need to forewarn you, it, 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 it's, it's a lot. And so as you're looking at your uh, notes and your bulletin, uh, we'll do the best we can to keep up. Uh, you know, my goal is, is to propel us to uh, consider all of what God is teaching us in this four-week series as we begin our new year. Uh, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that. Where is God leading us? How is God doing what he's doing in, the, in our life, in our lives as individuals, as followers, in the life of our church, in the life of your family, your business, your work, every aspect of who you are and what you bring to this place. So um, um, I, I just want to just lovingly say, I just hope you'll buckle up today. And uh, I pray that as we go through this, that the Spirit will really transform and challenge us this morning. Uh, I'm going to start this morning uh, with uh, a uh, reading from Matthew chapter 19. If you have your Bibles with you, <clears throat> I encourage you to turn to Matthew chapter 19. Uh, the, the, the story is chapter six, or I'm sorry, verses 16 through 30, so you can read all of that at your own leisure, but I'm only going to be reading this morning verses 16 through 22. So Matthew chapter 19, uh, verses 16 through 22. And behold, a man came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. And the young man said, which ones? Sounds like you and me too, doesn't it? Jesus said, you shall not murder. Okay, I think I got that one down this week. You shall not commit adultery. We got that one down, right, church? You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Ugh. Honor your father and mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Man, I thought I had it right up until that last one. The young man said to him, All these things I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go. Sell what you possess. Give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. This is God's word. May God open our hearts and minds to the truth of it, that we might be transformed by it through the work of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Last week, today, and for the next two weeks, we're going to be looking at how we do a healthy start to the new year. Now, last week, which was the first Sunday of the year, a lot of you probably came to church, and you came to church having made your New Year's resolution, and you were sure that the one thing that you had chosen to include or exclude from your life was going to make your life significantly better. And this Sunday, you come either well, starting all over again, or saying to yourself, well, that was a good try. Maybe I'll have better luck next year. 
Now, over these four weeks that we're looking at this, it's my hope that we'll look deeper into our lives and not just the things we can do to make our lives better, but to discover the root of who we are and what we're doing, why we do things, and in so doing, begin to challenge ourselves to remember that the gospel message is not about who we are, but whose we are. Now, Christianity is a really uh, unique religion, uh, especially in relationship with other religions throughout the world. I mean, if you study religions, there are basically two kinds of major religions. Monotheistic religions. These are religions that believe in one God. There is only one true God. We Christians confess that. Christianity is quite clear about that. We testify that we are a monotheistic religion. There's another kind of religion called polytheism. That is, is that they believe in multiple gods. And we really confound polytheists and other monotheists. Because even though we say we believe in one God, we believe in the one God who is in three persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now let me just say that we oftentimes refer to this as a mystery. What's that mean? That means that if you have figured it out and can, can logically explain it and, and provide an analogy that you think perfectly captures the truth of one God and three persons, whatever you say is probably not right and certainly probably not biblical. But we believe this. Each of us believe in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But if we're honest with ourselves, most of us bring to our life another trinity. The trinity that influences how we value things. A trinity that helps us discern our ideas. A trinity that helps us appraise our thoughts and whether or not what's happening in the world is acceptable or appropriate. It's a trinity that influences our feelings and our thoughts. What's that trinity? The trinity of me, myself, and I. Now, today, the text we read together is from Matthew chapter 19. And this encounter between Jesus and a young man is also found in the Gospel of Mark and in the Gospel of Luke. Now, if you're in a small group, and I hope you are, your study guides, study guides, which are on the rack, I already told you, to the left of the Welcome Center, help uh, unpack this text even more, ask some questions for you to further reflect on, and seek to shed some additional light on the text. But I'm going to summarize very quickly, just so that we're going into this, with some sense of awareness. This story is oftentimes referred to as the story of the rich young ruler, or the rich young man. Now, we don't really know a lot about him. We're not told his name. We're not told what group of people he comes from, where his family comes from. All we really know about him is what we might discern from what he says to Jesus, what the text reveals to us. Now, we do see some things. We see that he approaches the second person of the Godhead, God the Son, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, and we see that he takes with him his own trinity, me, myself, and I. 
an unholy trinity. Now, sometimes this guy gets a bad rap. Oh, we Christians are good at that. Humans are good at that. We look at the things that other people do, the questions that they ask that are foolish, the opinions that they come to that aren't appropriate, and we reasonably judge them and condemn them, but oftentimes aren't able to see ourselves in the same situation. A lot of the things that we are critical of in the world of other folks are things that we ourselves are guilty of time and again. And so the first challenge that I'm offering to you, and probably the most difficult, is as we look at the life and the interaction of this young man with Jesus, can we, at least in the quietness of our own heart, see if those things are our issues as well? Now listen, this young man, I'll start, this young man reminds me of myself, when I see him. And so because of that, I'm going to try to cut him some slack. I hope you will too. He's trying to figure things out. So let's real quickly look at some of the things that he does. First of all, the man respects the law. When Jesus asks him about the law, he asks him about the second half of the Ten Commandments, actually the last six commandments of the Ten Commandments. And the man actually attests to Jesus that he has indeed fulfilled all of them. Now, I have to say, that's a pretty bold claim. But only in light of how Jesus teaches about the Ten Commandments in Matthew chapter 5. Now, if you're not familiar with this, I'd encourage you to go back and read Matthew chapter 5. But I think as I go on, you'll remember something in this from some Bible study you were in or maybe even Sunday school when you were a kid. Remember when Jesus is talking about the law, the law says, you have been told that you are not to commit murder, but I say to you, if you hate your brother, you have committed murder in your heart. (sighs) Jesus goes on to say, the law teaches you that you should not commit adultery, but if you lust in your heart, you have already committed adultery. Now, I have had, I've had folks come to me and say, well, if that's the bar that's, that Jesus is establishing, we might as well just go ahead and do the deed. But that's not why Jesus teaches this. You see, what Jesus is teaching here isn't to change God's word, but to remind us that God is interested in revealing to us that we all have fallen short of his joy and his expectations of us. You see, the point here isn't to say, this is what I expect of you, and if you don't hit this bar, then I don't love you. No. What he's saying here is, is you and I can't possibly meet that bar. It's impossible for us. And what does that drive us to? That drives us to the conclusion that we need a Savior. We need Jesus Christ. Now, this man, as broken as he might be, we got to give him some credit. He's at least seeking Jesus. Now, he may not know who Jesus really is. Listen, listen, listen to your own hearts. He may not always understand the full ramifications of what it means to seek after Jesus. He may not understand fully what it is Jesus is doing, 
But he knows this. He knows that something is missing in his life. He knows where to go to get some input that he needs to fix that missingness in his life. Now, I love Mark's version of this. Mark adds a really brief phrase that gives us some insight on how Jesus was looking into that young man's heart. And you might want to write this down and go back and look at it later from Mark chapter 10, verse 21. Mark says that after the young man has asked Jesus these questions, Mark says, and Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Man, that gives me some hope. That even in this man's confusion, even in this young man's misunderstanding, even in this young man's own shortcomings, even in his own brokenness, even though we might stand in righteous judgment of his cluelessness, Jesus still loves him. Man, that gives me hope. That even in the midst of my inabilities, even in the midst of my struggles, even in the midst of my doubts, even in the midst when I don't know what God is doing, I know God loves me. And God loves you too. Aren't there times in our lives when we don't know the answers to our questions? We may not even know which questions to ask. But we do know where to get the answer. And we do know that we need to be humble enough to even ask for help asking the right question. Probably the saddest thing in this whole story is that even though the man wants to make sure he has it all together, he's haunted by his own trinity that he doesn't even recognize. He's haunted by his idol of me, myself, and I. Isn't it human nature to think we know what we need? I have several friends who are physicians. I don't know how I got several friends who are physicians, but I have many friends who are physicians. It's always good to have a friend who's a physician. One of the things that they always share with me, uh, especially for those who started practicing before the internet was around, is the number of patients who come to see them and already know what's wrong with them. They have their symptoms diagnosed, and many of them even have the treatment suggestions that they think they need because they went on to WebMD. I can't tell you how many times I, as a minister, have had couples come to me well, particularly one member of a couple, and has come and told me how rough their marriage is going, and then they give me a list of things that I should tell their spouse to change about themselves so that the marriage will be better off. It happens in business too, those of you who are in business, especially if you're in a customer service business. Customers will come to you and tell you everything that you're doing wrong and that those things are the reason that you won't be in business next week, even though your company's been around since 1928. Now, thankfully, this doesn't happen in the church ever. After the first service, it was really interesting. I had a number of people come past me and say, here's what we need to do differently here. I told them to call me Monday. I'm going to tell the office staff that I'm out. (laughs) You see, the young man was at least willing to add more to what he thought he needed to do, but only one more. What thing must I do? It's in the singular. Some of the other gospels say they drive that home. What one thing must I do? Now, that's pretty audacious to me. 
That scares the daylights out of me. To walk up to the king of kings and basically say, you know, I'm pretty sure I have everything together, but hey, I think I might need one more. One more thing that I can do, as long as it's just one more thing. Now, Tom Nichols, who is a professor at the United States Naval War College, is also the author of a great book called The Death of Expertise. Professor Nichols argues that this is a cultural phenomenon. He says, today everyone knows everything. With only a quick trip through WebMD or a Wikipedia, average citizens believe themselves to be on an equal intellectual footing with doctors and diplomats. All voices, even the most ridiculous, demand to be taken with equal seriousness. And any claim to the contrary is dismissed as undemocratic elitism. I understand this. Before we, uh, before we moved here to Colorado, I was an adjunct faculty member at a Christian university. Did that for about three years. And I was astonished the first semester that I taught, didn't realize this was coming. I received an email from the university with my grades. You see, I didn't know it. I was adjunct, so I wasn't in the middle of all this stuff. Apparently, a survey is sent to all my students, and are you ready? The students got to judge how well I knew my topic. Are you kidding me? This is an example of the customer service mentality, even in education. And although we chuckle at these things, do we not, as a part of humanity, also grade God? on how well he's doing as sovereign of the universe. I have to keep remembering what the gospel of Mark says. You remember where Jesus says he loves him. And in so doing, Jesus introduces the man to what it looks like to be perfect. Now, this word perfect may surprise us. It may kind of jolt us for just a second because of how our culture understands the word perfect. But it wouldn't have surprised the young man. He would have been very familiar with the word. He was steeped in the law. He said that he was steeped in the law. All kinds of bells and whistles would have gone off in his head. You see, to the ancients, particularly those who were well-grounded in Scripture, perfect literally means complete, whole, undivided, and or holy. Now, the Bible uses two main words in the original languages that are used for this concept all throughout Scripture. There's a few more, but the, there are two main ones. They both can be translated using the exact same words, but each word carries a little different emphasis on one side or the other. For example, one of the words that we typically trans translate holy means to be set apart. That's what the word holy means, to be set apart. The other word has more of a meaning of undivided. That, that is, as our attention is undivided. That is, is that we are focused. And we typically translate that word perfect. But like I said, both words are interchangeable. Both words can be found throughout Scripture using different, uh, 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 having different meanings depending on the context. But this is how we oftentimes translate them. Now, the word Jesus uses here is a word that is a word that carries more of the meaning undivided or focused. 
Now, it's safe to assume that the young man would have immediately thought of at least two different verses in the Hebrew Scriptures that he knew very well. The first one comes from Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 13. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. You could just as easily translate this, and a lot of uh, translations do, you shall be perfect before the Lord your God. What that means is, is you should be undivided, focused. Now, that's a tough text. Sometimes it's understood as if it's your responsibility to be without blame when you come before the Lord. Now, good luck with that one. But it also can be just as easily understood and read that when you and I stand before the Lord, humble, submissive, undivided, focused on Him, it is He who makes us blameless. It doesn't negate the demand for perfection. As a matter of fact, it accentuates it. But coming for God isn't our, quote, being good enough. Coming before God is not about doing all the commandments, or at least most of them, even maybe one that I'm not sure of. Coming before God is significantly more serious. It is a necessity of pure blamelessness that you and I cannot do. That doesn't seem fair, does it? Now, how's that work? The other text that's found in the Old Testament that this man would have known was this text from Leviticus 19, verse 2. You shall be holy. This means that you shall be set apart. That is, you shall be different than the nations around you in the context of Leviticus. Or in our own context, you should be set apart to reflect the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ to the world. Jesus helps us when earlier... In Matthew, Matthew chapter 5, before the story of the rich young man, Jesus says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now my trinity and your trinity, that unholy trinity, me, myself, and I, begins to tremble. There is nothing worse in this world than realizing that that which you put hope in is going to fail you. There's nothing more disconcerting in the world to realize that that which I thought I could do, I can't. And that which I thought I could do to provide fruit will actually be fruitless. That my efforts are leading me in the opposite direction of where I know I need to go. I got this idol of me, myself, and I, and I don't know how to throw it down onto the rocks. I don't know where to go. I don't know what to do, just like this young man. But he did know to whom he should go. Today, in the life of the church, is also the day we commemorate the baptism of Jesus Christ. I think it's interesting that the church puts the baptism right after we celebrate at the birth. The gospel lesson that talks about this is in Matthew chapter 3. I want to read this to you. Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 to 17. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized him by him. 
John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. And when Jesus was baptized, here it is, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. In this moment, we are confronted with the true Holy Trinity, the voice of God the Father, the person of God the Son, and the descending of the dove, God, the Holy Spirit. It's a beautiful scene. It's a beautiful scene where we are first introduced to the true Trinity, the real Trinity. You see, what this teaches us is that it isn't that Jesus comes to live perfectly according to the law, but that Jesus fulfills the law and the consequences of it. Now, you remember earlier, when we just left the first section of the sermon, you're like, first section? How many sections are there? Just two. Well, maybe three. When I asked you how this whole blameless, perfect, holy thing works, well, it's in Christ Jesus that we are made holy. It's in Jesus that we are made perfect. It's in Jesus that we are made undivided. You see, the purpose of this pulpit, the purpose of us gathering together, my purpose in life is not to tell you how you can make yourselves presentable before, the God, before God, but to announce to you the gospel message that it is Jesus Christ who has done that work for us. It is he who is our hope. It is he who redeems you. It is he who has created you. It is he who has sustained you. That the purpose of this place is not to glorify us or to self-help us, but the purpose of this place is to announce the sufficient and all-encompassing and final work of Jesus Christ. It is in Jesus Christ that we are called to turn from our own trinity of me, myself, and I to the trinity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, through whom we have been created, redeemed, and sustained. For that matter... Because even when we do seek Jesus, we, like the young man, don't know what we need, what to ask, or even have the ability to recognize the right answer, we are comforted in the fact that Jesus seeks us. Now, I know the old preacher said, you need to find Jesus, but that's not even possible. Thanks be to God that it is Jesus who finds us. We're wandering around in darkness. How do we know where to go? It's Jesus as he walks into, the, into darkness, as our praise team sang earlier, that the darkness flees and the light illuminates our lives, our hearts. You see, unlike the assumptions of the young man, it isn't we who put things together. It is Jesus who puts it all together. Now, it's hard to let go this illusion that somehow we're in control of our own lives. We want to control the events, the methods, the approach, because we think that in doing so, we somehow can control the outcome that we think is best for our trinity, me, myself, and I. Can you imagine going into a heart surgeon's office right before your heart surgery and saying to him, hey, I got this, but I need you to talk me through the incision, the bypass, and the best way to stitch myself up? You can't do it. 
There comes a point when you have to be okay with the fact that the surgeon is going to knock you out and helpless upon that table. He's going to be tinkering with the one organ that will decide your tomorrow. And we have the faith to do that, but we don't have the faith to go to God, our creator, our redeemer, our sustainer. It's not weakness to follow the lead of other folks. It's wisdom. It's not weakness to trust the Lord to carry you through your doubts, your hurt, your fear, your anger. It's the wisest thing you can do. The young man asked if there was one more law he needed to cover. There's one more law. The only one he needs to know is, is that Jesus is the one. You know, the Gospel of John lists seven times these I am statements that Jesus says. Now, I don't want to preach too long, but I do want to give you these. And if you're taking notes, you can write them down and go back and look at them. In John chapter 6, verse 35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Not me, not us. I am the bread of life, Jesus says. John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. John 10, verse 9, I am the door. John 10, verse 11, I am the good shepherd. John 11, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And John 15, 1, I am the true vine. Jesus is the one who does all the work. Jesus is the one who is the perfect lamb and sacrifice in our life. I'd like to ask the choir to come forward at this time. They know that they're going to be invited forward. I don't care how you get up here, choir. Just come on up. We're about to prepare ourselves, church, to receive Holy Communion, the Lord's Supper. You see, the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, replaces our unholy trinity of me, myself, and I. Now listen, I know I've given you a lot. There's been a lot to go through. Some of you have you know, thought about where you're going to lunch today. That's fine. But at least for right now, this is the takeaway. If everything else was boring and you didn't understand it, no worries. At least listen to the next few minutes because this is what I want you to leave here with. I don't know about you, but today, today, I want to repent of my selfishness, my incessant need to control, my demands for sacrifices made to my idol of me, myself, and I. I want to repent of thinking that the world and God has to do things my way. There was an old preacher named Augustine who lived in the year 354 to 430. He lived in North Africa, and he wrote this, Idolatry is worshiping anything that ought to be used or using anything that is meant to be worshiped. I ask myself every day, am I using God to meet the needs of my trinity, of me, myself, and I? Am I worshiping me, myself, and I as the highest goal of my life? Or am I offering myself to be used by God for his glory, the proclamation of the message that God loves the world so much that he sent his only son? Now today, we're going to receive Jesus Christ at this table. 
And I want to encourage you to do something. Let go. Trust that even in the worst times, even in the most frightening times of life, when you thought that you had everything planned out according to your plan for your me, myself, and I idol, that life throws you a curveball, I want you to let all of that go and trust God. Trust. Let him be your focus. Give him your attention, undivided. Remember, he has made you perfect, blameless, holy. Listen, you, brothers, my brothers, you are his amazingly gifted son, strong, and he's proud. He's proud to say that he's your father. Listen to me, my sisters, my sisters in Christ. You are his beloved daughter, and he loves showing the world the beauty of your character, the strength of your integrity, the insightfulness of your heart and mind. Let go. Let go. He's there. He's got this. And together, as we relinquish our grip on that golden idol of me, myself, and I, we'll discover who we really are, what we're meant to be. Lose your life today so that God can save it. So what if you die? All he's going to do is raise you from the dead again. Don't look for yourself. You won't like what you find. Look for him, and he'll find you. And his wealth, his wisdom, his love, his grace, his mercy, his strength, all of that will be yours as well. Oh God, we prepare ourselves to approach your table with reverence and humility. And we come to this table expecting to meet Jesus Christ in the bread and in the cup. And as we make him one with us, as we take him into our being, may he permeate our whole body, all of our heart, all of our mind. May he take us over for the glory of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Father, it's hard as we hold that idol of me, myself, and I, we don't even know how to throw it down under the rocks. We don't even know how to let it go. We don't even know how to crush it. But we know we need the true Holy Trinity of you. And so, Father, as we prepare to let go, we trust you will catch us. You got it. You got our life. And we're looking forward to how life will change the moments after we receive you at this table and go forth into this world. In Jesus' name, amen.